Here's a small part of what's coming up on the Beaver Tales podcast. I was mentally just breaking down. I was, I, I had never been so lost playing a game of baseball. And I just decided I was, I was done with playing hesitant, being scared and all that kind of stuff. That whole conversation coming up on the Beaver Tales podcast. Real quick, before we get to this conversation, I want to ask you if you might check out the website for this podcast, where you can leave your email on there to get updates, both about this podcast and the Beaver Tales documentaries. You can learn more about what that audio project is coming out later this year. And one of the perks of getting on that email list is that you can give me suggestions on what to mention at the beginning of this podcast, where oftentimes times I give some free exposure to nonprofits or charities. And if there's one you'd like to give a shout out to or a story, something going on in the community you think deserves some attention, I want to use this platform to do something good. And you can be a part of that conversation if you join up for this email list. Once you leave your email there, you'll get an immediate message back and you can respond to that. Do check your spam folder. They go there sometimes and you can be a part of this conversation. So check out the link in the description for this episode and I hope to hear back from you soon. But for now, let's enjoy this episode together. This is the Beaver Tales Podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State Athletics since 2013. Well, it's a big day on the Beaver Tales podcast. Hello again, everybody. I'm Josh Warden. Thanks for joining me. Normally, this podcast includes former Oregon State athletes as they talk about what they've done in life since leaving OSU and their memories from Oregon State. Now, this individual I'm talking with today does have plenty of memories from significant Oregon State sporting moments, but he's actually a current Oregon State athlete. But I think the exception is worthy for Kevin Abel, who joins me today to talk about 2018. Now, you may remember watching the Oregon State College World Series, and if you're not a huge Beaver baseball fan, you may have only watched the last couple of games or just read about Kevin Abel throws a complete game shutout in Game 3 of the finals to win the national championship. Now, that's an amazing memory, and yes, we do talk about that, but that's not his whole story. His freshman year was actually pretty fascinating to see how much he struggled at the beginning of the year for his ERA to get up near 7 to actually kind of lose his starting role as a pitcher and then work his way back. A turnaround game against Oregon on a Tuesday rivalry matchup and then to become an absolutely dominant pitcher in the postseason through the College World Series. That was no mistake. It's actually pretty simple what to point to about what made the change. In short, the answer is his mental growth. He worked with his mental coach, Alan Jager, who I've talked with for about an hour about Kevin Abel and other players of how he worked through meditation, finding a mental process, something to focus on. Talked with Tyler Graham on this podcast, who is at Oregon State and led the meditation sessions. So I talked with Kevin about, take me through what changed mentally. We talk about that at the first part of the conversation, and then we talk about specific memories from 2018. Hopefully this conversation gets you excited about the Beaver Baseball documentary I'm working on. A podcast documentary coming out later this year will include a lot of clips from this interview of Kevin talking about specific moments, and these clips will be spliced throughout the documentary of him talking about LSU or beating Mississippi State or whatever other fun anecdotes there are on and off the field. So let's get right to it. Kevin Abel joins me from the Oregon State National Championship team in 2018. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I was looking back at some post-game press conferences of uh, the LSU game in the regionals or uh, 
um, early in the College World Series, whether it be the Washington game or whatever it was, multiple times people asked you, Kevin, why are you so different than earlier in the season? What's changed? Why, why are you pitching so well? And oftentimes your response would be, well, I'm not doing anything different physically. I didn't add another pitch, I'm not taller, none of that. It's all mental. It's all that sort of thing. But it, it kind of felt like to me like m maybe the people in the room you were talking to didn't fully understand what you were talking about. They couldn't really capture exactly what that change was. Did it feel like that to you when you were trying to explain that a little bit? Uh, I guess maybe a little bit. I think it was just they, the answer just wasn't good enough for them. I guess that's why they kept asking. Uh, they don't understand how much of this game is mental and not much of it is physical once you get to this level. Really, everyone's on the same same physical level, especially and that doesn't really change as you go up to pro ball either. Besides the you know the few unicorns like the the Degroms or whatever, just people that are just a lot bigger or something. But most of it is how consistent you can make that mental game. I think a great example that gets used a lot uh, is if you have. 20 starts a year you're lucky to have three starts where you're just on your game uh another big portion of them you'll be you'll have some pretty good stuff and then you'll have a handful where you're just terrible like you have nothing and how how mentally strong you are will move those games where you have very little and it'll make them seem like average those average games will be really good in those games where you're on you do something special so yeah I think that's the big reason why they just didn't really like the answer yeah well for one I do like the answer and so that's why that's why I want to talk about it more with you and really get into the heart of it and I've I've captured some of it. You know, Alan Jager can, can talk your ear off for days about the, the importance of the mental game and, and how to get into it, to build your mental process. Tyler Graham's also a great guy to talk with. So tell me a little bit about, you I mean, you've said the importance of it, of how much it can do for you. Now tell me a little bit about how to do that. You know, how exactly did the mental game change you, what you were thinking about differently, the processes you would go through, kind of, kind of explain that a little bit more. Uh, a lot of it started out with me just not being so hard on myself, pitch to pitch, uh, when I did make a mistake, being able to let it go um, and not taking that negative thought and that negative energy into the next pitch. Uh, so for me, that's what it started with, and I had to practice that for weeks until it became uh, almost second nature. And once I did that, then I was able to – focus on myself and then kind of redirect or uh, kind of just change, change the energy to where it was more positive. So now it's instead of saying, damn, I didn't make that pitch. It's well, that really sets up this now, or this, this is what did to did to the hitter and this is how it benefits me and things like that. And once I was able to do that, uh, I never really had, struggles where I was throwing four pitches in a row that were just all over the place. You know, I was able to bounce back and kind of not get too far away from losing a hitter or uh, letting an inning blow up on me and things like that. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, a lot of baseball is bouncing back from your mistakes, not not getting too ahead of yourself, not letting one mistake beat you twice. Do you remember a specific time, especially in the postseason in 2018, where you did let one or two pitches get away from you, but you came back within yourself? You didn't let it, you know, roll out of control. Do you remember a specific play in, in Omaha or the regionals, whatever it may be, where that definitely came to fruition? Uh, not any, not anything like, uh, that'd be too noticeable. Uh, I would say anytime you see me fall behind a, a count like two and oh, and I misfired two pitches, you'll see me step way behind the mound and kind of regather myself, take a deep breath. Uh, and that's what I'm doing. I'm just resetting myself, reminding myself that, you know, it's not, it's not, all, it's not the end of the world. Uh, right. and usually that kind of resets me and I can, get back into a groove of things most of the guys who worked with Tyler and Alan uh, developed or chose a short phrase maybe it's two words three words where they would repeat it to themselves when they're in the batter's box or they're in the field or on the mound what was your phrase that you tell yourself and how did it help you uh for me it was uh, and I kind of worked with Alan on this was uh, like a three a three-step sort of thing for myself and it was breathe uh just to relax my body and kind of be in the moment uh it was stay tall which was just a mechanical cue for me uh keeping good posture uh that was usually my my big issue mechanically when i would get out of wax was i would start to break posture and stuff so that was just a little reminder for myself and then it was dominate i wasn't i wasn't up there to you know just do good enough or be be a part of something I was there to you know make the other make the opponent feel bad for being on the same field I, I, like, I like that breathe stay tall dominate um take me to a time where let's say early in the season because I want to show we'll talk about amazing memories of Omaha and Arkansas and all that where you were using that process to a T and I want to contrast how well it went at the end of the season with how much you grew earlier. So let's start with where it wasn't going as easily, where maybe the mechanics did break down, where you did let a 2-0 count become a 3-0 count and a walk, um, whether it's maybe one of the Arizona games in particular, whatever example that kind of stands out most to you. Do you remember um, a time specifically where you did say, gosh, I, I did let that get to me. I did throw a couple walks. Is there any particular member that stands out? Yeah, I think – once we were about a month into the season, uh, there, there was times where I could look back and just, I was telling myself, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And instead of focusing on the good of, if you throw this pitch right down the middle, the best hitters are going to hit it three out of 10 times and it's still going to be all right. So uh, yeah, looking back, I can, I can see how I would <clears throat> say, I, I tell myself I can't walk this guy. I can't, or I can't put it right here. Otherwise it's going to get, hammered and things like that I was giving giving the opponent too much credit and myself not enough uh so once once I kind of made that switch I started to slowly get better and better at maintaining that process throughout an outing uh and that's when you saw my outing start to increase in length and uh the results were a little bit better do you remember the the Oregon game in particular? Allen brought that one up as, man, I was watching that, that game against the Ducks and something changed in Kevin that one. I think it was a Tuesday game, if I remember correctly. Yep. Did that one feel like a turning point for you? 
yeah, that was a big, big turning point for me. Uh, I remember having a phone call with my with my mom earlier that week, or maybe it was from the weekend before or something like that. And I was like, I was mentally just breaking down. I was, I, I had never been so lost playing a game of baseball. And I just decided I was, I was done with playing hesitant, being scared and all that kind of stuff and started really committing to, to the process and working that mental game. And the Tuesday game against Oregon was when it first kind of shined through. And yeah, there was no going back after that. To see the change makes it that much more impressive for your mental fortitude to come back from that state to, to show not just your physical capabilities, but mental. So it makes it that much crazier that you would say something like, I was lost, I was hesitant, I, I was breaking down. Did you notice that affecting you throughout the day? You're going to class, you're, you're walking back to your apartment, and you're just kind of bummed out, you're a little bit lower. Did you feel it? I mean, I wouldn't blame you if it was, and it only make it that much more impressive to see how the season ended. So did you feel yourself kind of dragging a little bit, whether you're on the, on the baseball field or just like at home? Absolutely, yeah. No, it definitely, when, when you, all you, we, we've designated most of your life towards doing something, and it, for the first time ever, it was really uh, hard and not necessarily pleasant uh yeah it was it was hard uh to do other things because you're always kind of thinking about that and uh wanting to fix it and you're putting a lot of time towards figuring it out and uh but it, it makes it all the more worth it that i was able to push through all that and get to the other side so it, yeah it definitely had some felt felt really good to be able to know i've gone through that and know that probably the hardest part of my career is behind me i would say that was harder than rehabbing Tommy John having gone through that it made me much more prepared for going through the rehab process and so it's it really has been a blessing in disguise I guess that's amazing to hear last thing maybe on this topic and then we'll just kind of go piece by piece through the college world series and ask about some specific games with what you talked about and you've kind of touched on how the mental process and the working through difficulty has already affected other areas of your life but when you talk about having this mental kind of steel within you of, of, you know, not letting things get to you of being, you know, breathe, stay tall, dominate, whatever it may be. Do you find that, that the meditation, the focus, the finding your mental process has affected you in more ways than just a baseball player, that you're more strong as a person that other areas of your life become improved because of what baseball has done for you and your mental growth there? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, everyone always says baseball teaches you, lifelong lessons and uh i think the funniest thing uh was i uh, my girlfriend was you know telling me i was you know not doing well with communicating or something like that and i was like oh yeah I'll, like oh that's perfect i'll i'll do better and uh and i was like why didn't you tell me sooner she said well i didn't want to you know tell you you're doing something wrong I was like I get told I'm doing something wrong every day at practice field four hours a day so it doesn't make it any different but so I think just you learn how to take criticism you learn how to to manage yourself in a pressure situation and be committed to a routine and to a process and all that stuff it makes living life a lot easier because baseball is a lot more unpredictable than life is I think it's sometimes so uh, yeah, I think it definitely carries over. Yeah, that, that'll help you. If baseball helps you in relationships with your girlfriend, you know you're doing something right. So that's absolutely that's good to hear. Um, 
I was listening back to the radio broadcast of the LSU game earlier today, the second LSU game, the one that you pitched in. Um, you know, this is your first postseason action as a collegiate baseball player. You go eight innings, you know, three hits allowed, dominate the Tigers and eliminate them. That's how you moved on to the Super Regionals. Um, it was it was pretty impressive. The, the talk on the radio broadcast that Mike and, and Jim were talking about was the change-ups early. The LSU was watching fastball time and time again. You threw three change-ups in a row at one point in the first inning, struck a guy out on a change-up. From whatever you remember of LSU, did it feel like, they weren't really used to seeing good change-up pitchers? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's known. I mean, SEC's 95-mile-an-hour-plus fastballs and sliders. That's pretty much all you'll see. I mean, you have guys like – I don't think it's Auburn in the SEC, but Casey Mize, anyway. They, they play a lot of SEC schools. Uh, he had the splitter, which is basically a change-up, and he dominated. Like, that's – when you see guys that have three pitches, you're – You'll, you'll notice that they can do a lot more uh, than two pitch guys. When you, when you take a coin flip and change it to a 33% chance on whether you're guessing the right pitch for the hitter, it makes it a lot more difficult. So I think just them not necessarily seeing a whole lot of them throughout the season. And then in my opinion, that's my best pitch. So just the matchup works well. I just happened to be commanding my fastball that day. So they had to honor that. And then when I'm able to, tunnel the two off each other it usually works out pretty well but yeah they they definitely put together some really really good at bats uh, I felt like they were able to put together more better at bats than Arkansas was in my opinion they they took pitches that they knew they couldn't handle and were only really swinging at stuff that they could until later in the count when they had to get defensive but uh, they were they were a good lineup and that was one of the days where my, my stuff was was working really really well not that you bring up the comparison of LSU Arkansas who was the best lineup that you faced in the postseason? Probably, probably LSU. LSU Arkansas is pretty close, but I just thought they were – it seemed like they were seeing my stuff a little bit better than Arkansas was at times. I, and I felt like I had better stuff in the LSU game than I did in the Arkansas game. They were just helping me out more in the Arkansas game, swinging at, swinging at stuff they shouldn't have. How many SEC pitchers do you think not only just don't throw the changeup often or don't have a particularly good changeup, but just don't throw it at all, just don't have it in their arsenal? Uh, that's hard to tell. I, yeah. I just, I just, uh, in my opinion, most of the way baseball has been going is you just you recruit velocity and you can teach the rest, which is very true. Uh, velocity opens doors; it it, it gets, gets you noticed and things like that. But uh, I started throwing a changeup when I was probably nine, eight or nine. Uh, so that's just that's been with me my whole life. Been throwing it for. 11 years now so it's I'm because it's become second nature for me honestly I feel like I can locate a changeup more often than I can locate a fastball uh but it's just it's an it's an equalizer I feel like if you ask a lot of hitters uh what the hardest pitch in baseball is to hit it's a, they'll say a good changeup, and then probably after that they'll say 100 mile an hour fastball or the two are probably pretty close to being equal so it's just it's hard to see. It looks it looks like a fastball, but it doesn't move like one. Uh, and when you have to gear up to hit 90 plus, and then you drop some in there, it's eight to 10 miles an hour slower. It, it's hitting's already hard enough. Right. Exactly. 
Tell me about how you developed the grip on the fastball, whether it was a particular coach that helped you tinker with it, just how you developed a release. I mean, anybody can say, this is how you hold a change, I mean, excuse me, change up. Um, this is how you hold a change up and whatnot. But what helped you develop it? I'm sure part of it was pitching it since you were eight or nine years old, but what helped you develop it to make it such an effective change up? Uh, the biggest things I was told when I was younger was all it is is just a, it's a fastball with a different grip. You're still trying to throw it, make it look like a fastball. You're trying to use the arm speed like a fastball. And all you want to do is just hold on to it just a little bit longer. Just instead of releasing it right over right over the top, just hold on to it just that split second more and let the grip do all the work. Uh, and so I think me hearing that at such a young age and then practicing it and trust, you learn to trust that I don't have to try to do anything different. I'm not trying to really turn over my hand I'm not trying to manipulate or slow down my arm or anything I'm just gonna trust that the grip's gonna do all the work for me uh, and I think that's why mine's effective is because I do keep that arm speed up so it does look like I'm throwing a fastball uh, and then the grip just does the rest for me uh, and the grip was I started out throwing a two-seam one when I was really young uh, and switched to a four-seam one when I realized that they don't really look the same uh, so I wanted, I wanted them to look the same. And it took a while to get kind of used to it. But uh, it was just a lot of trial and error, you know, doing stuff on my own, playing catch with it all the time, uh, and just never giving up on it. Of all the guys who are most fooled by your changeup, the one that actually stands out to me is, and I'm blanking on his name, the DH for Washington, the big, like, 6'4 guy. Uh, 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 Joe something, right? Um, yes, starts at W. Wainwright, Joe Wainwright. Wainhouse. Wainhouse. Yes, Wainhouse. Thank you. Yes. I was thinking, yeah, Joe Wainhouse. Dude was thinking fastball every time, and you keep on throwing changeups against him, and he could not read it. Yeah, we knew he was a fastball hitter, and he was always looking on the inner half. Uh, and he also has that big leg kick. So when you have that big leg kick and you have to gear up for 90-plus and you're looking for 90-plus, it makes, it makes it a lot easier to throw a changeup in there with a lot of confidence knowing that he's probably not going to get a whole lot on it if he does make contact. All right. Speaking of that Washington game, you were already pitching before the weather delay through 17 pitches. When you first heard from the umpires or the field crew, hey, there's a weather delay, got to go back into the locker room, was your immediate reaction calmness? Like, all right, this is okay, there's no worries. Was there a little bit of anxiety, a little bit like, ah, shoot, I don't want to have to go in? What, what was your immediate thought when hearing weather delay? Didn't really think much. Uh, just kind of talked with Yeski and uh, our trainer Jeremy at the time. Uh, and just the whole the whole time it was just stay loose, keep your body warm, uh, and so that's what I did. Uh, we just, I mean, I didn't. The nice part was I didn't really throw much before the the before the weather delay. So really, I just kind of got somewhat loose, and then was having to shut down so it really wasn't that big of a deal it's kind of like how it is when you warm up before a game and then you don't go in until the seventh anyway you're sitting there for two and a half hours uh and then you go down the bullpen and have to get going so really it was just like coming out of the bullpen uh, uh after the rain delay so it wasn't never really a worry or anything like that it was just whatever whatever it is uh, Dylan Pierce was telling me a lot of the guys were playing mafia in there and, and I heard guys Absolutely. did you play any and were you victorious 
Absolutely. I think I won won a couple games. Uh, definitely, definitely not all of them, but oh yeah, I was playing. Of course I was. That was, that's like our, that's our thing for bus rides or killing time, whatever. It's gets people off their phones. It, it uh, helps. It's fun to see people argue and yell at each other and things like that. So uh, yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. What's your mafia strategy? Stay quiet in the background, be aggressive and accuse people. You got to mix it up. Otherwise people will realize like, Oh, he's quiet when he's in the mafia. He's loud when he's the townsperson. So you got to mix it up. You got to be willing to risk killing off some townspeople when you're wrong. But you know, it's, it's all about reading body language, you know, picking up on those, those nervous ticks, you know, seeing people are, people are lying. Nate, Nathan Burns, honestly, one of the best liars I've ever seen. Uh, that guy will look you straight in the eye, tell you he's not in mafia, and will kill you next round. <laughs> Are you sure you should be friends with him? Because it seems like he might stab you in the back in real life, too. <laughs> it's the only thing he can lie about. I've seen him try to lie to his girlfriend, and uh, it didn't work out. <laughs> A little white lie. I tried to tell him, tried to tell her that he wasn't doing anything for her, and he couldn't do it. He, he couldn't hold a straight face. So it's only, it's only in the game of mafia that he can do it. That's actually like really kind hearted and good lie in a yes. game where it's fine and then can't exactly. do it in real life. He's a good guy. He's a great Perfect. guy. <laughs> That's good. Um, it, when you came back out of the rain delay, sixth inning, seventh inning, eighth inning, one, two, three innings, one after the other, how, how good was it feeling to just mow down the Huskies inning after inning coming out of that? Uh, I mean, just having played them three times earlier in the season, uh, we had a lot of, scouting reports on the guys and had a good understanding of what they wanted, what they wanted to do with the play, what they were looking for. Uh, and having pitched against them earlier, I knew how my stuff, how my stuff played when I executed. And so my only thought was just all I got to do is make the pitch. Things are going to go well. So, uh, yeah, it was just, that's all I was really focusing on. And I didn't know that I, it wasn't really three up, three down for, for yeah. three or four innings. I, I didn't even know that. I'd have to, I know it's at least those three. I'll check the, the box score, but six, seventh, eighth. And then, I had no idea. That, that, that's good. That's good. You're <clears throat> humble. Yeah. Um, so that win prevents elimination. You're one and one in Omaha at that point. Then you beat Mississippi State and then you pitch in the second Mississippi State game. So I remember watching the post game press conference after game one. Um, and you're now in a winner take all scenario. It's elimination either way, whether you or Mississippi State loses. And yep. since both Femme and Luke had pitched the previous two games, it was clear that they weren't going to be the one to start this one. So Pat Case got the question, okay, who's going to start this Mississippi State game? And he said, well, not sure yet. Maybe Grant Gambrell, maybe Christian Chamberlain. We'll, we'll figure it out. And he did not mention your name at that point. Was that a little gamesmanship where he knew and you knew, but he didn't want to mention your name? Or is it really uncertain? I'm Probably because if you would have said my name, people would have crucified him because of days of rest or whatever and blah 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 but I knew I knew how my body felt and I knew I was feeling good and I talked with him in case or him and Yeski night before and I knew I was starting I mean I guess it could have been maybe but I think I don't know I think it was sometimes you just rather leave it up for mystery you know let people get inside their own head I guess but uh yeah, I think another reason probably could have been because of that. People will just freak out and 
don't understand what goes on behind the scenes. They right. just see what's out there. The the thing about that is he may have staved that off for a little bit, but obviously once you pitch, people can still criticize all they want once they still see Absolutely. well Kevin Abel's out there. So what do you say about I, you know, I know my own body. I know what I can do. So is, is any criticism of overtaxing your body completely unwarranted, you feel? Yeah. I mean, I didn't look tired when I was out there for seven innings. So obviously I was feeling okay. Uh, wasn't really high stress moments or anything like that. And uh, I hadn't pitched a whole lot up until the last part of the season. I think I doubled the amount of innings I threw starting – in the month of May and on. Uh, so uh, my body was fresh and my and Luke's and Femmes wasn't because we rode them really, really hard earlier on the season because our bullpen wasn't great. Uh, and so that's, I knew my body was fresh. I had thrown, I think I threw the same amount of innings I did my freshman year as I did in high school. So uh, I knew I was, I knew my body felt great. And uh, so I knew I could go out there and I got into trouble and, I knew there was plenty of people behind me to come in and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, we always had those conversations of how you're feeling. That was day before, during the game, in between innings, things like that. They're always on top of it. Uh, so yeah, I was never, I think it gets thrown out the window in my opinion. Yeah. Partway through that Mississippi State game, you got a five to one lead. You're feeling good. There's a couple times where they threaten one in particular uh, I want to say like the fifth inning or something where there's a comebacker that glances off your glove. Nick Madrigal kind of bobbles. It doesn't make the play. Now they got, you know, a guy on second and third, maybe it was, but then the next play liner to Gretler and he throws to Madrigal who finishes the double play. How, yep. how nice was that to see Nick Madrigal, a very uncharacteristic misplay by him, but then a chance to kind of come back and make the right play. I think the only two errors he made, I think he only made two errors in that whole season. I think both of them happened behind me, uh, which is funny, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's very rare that he makes a mistake. And so, you know, he's not going to do it again. You know, it kind of like, all right, big whoop, kind of like army now, uh, Andy Armstrong. I think if you could go to Vegas and had to bet on who was going to make the first error of the 2020 Oregon state season, you would have had, a hundred thousand to one odds on army making the first error. Uh, but he did. And he knew, well, he made his first error. He's not going to make one the rest of the year. Uh, but that's kind of how Nick was. And so it wasn't a big deal. I knew if I made my pitches, I was going to get a double play error. I was going to you know, strike a guy out. We're going to be all right. So uh, you never really just, you can't let that kind of stuff get to you. You just got to be confident in your own game and know that as long as you execute your plan, then you're going to be just fine. Last thing from Mississippi State before we talk about Arkansas. By the time you exit the game, your hands are off and you leave it in Jake Mulholland's hands. And it was a pretty crazy ninth inning there. Uh, what were you thinking with the bases loaded, your season's on the line, um, your work is done. So you have no tangible impact on the game. You're just watching Jake get himself into a jam and, and you didn't know it in the moment, but he would get himself out of the jam. But where were you at and your heart rate at at that moment? Oh, it was all good. I mean, if they would have hit a grand slam, like that's unbelievably unlikely. So it was, I was never really worried about that. And Molly's been one to do that before where he kind of gets, lets some little action get going and then he gets out of it. But so it's, 
was never really worried. We always have trust in Mully to – I mean, he's come in bases loaded, no outs before and gotten out of it without giving up a run. Uh, so uh, we were never really worried. We knew he was going to get out of it. And, uh, so it was just kind of waiting to see and how it was going to happen. <laughs> Maybe just purposely load him up so he can feel more comfortable, right? Yeah, yeah. He likes he's 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 a man man of the man of drama. He likes he likes making those moments really really big. It's where he does his best work. Yeah. Um, last few things about about Arkansas to kind of close it up. Um, let's just jump to game two since that's the first time you personally played. Um, you come in in the eighth inning and you're trailing three to two. Um, and I know you're trying to focus on the moment. You're trying to only focus on what you can control and you can't, you know, make an impact on how many runs you score in the top of the ninth inning. Um, no matter how well you pitch, you know, you'll still be down a run going into that top of the ninth. So not to mention, this is your first appearance in the college world series finals and it's the bottom of the eighth inning. So how much nervousness would you say there would have been had you not been focusing on your mental approach? Well, I would have been eaten alive by the by the moment. That was the loudest crowd I've probably played in. Uh, so yeah, if I wasn't mentally prepared, then that would have been the worst thing that ever happened to us. But uh, I knew all I had to do was have a clean inning, and we had the right guys coming up to bat uh, the next inning. So it was just try to keep the momentum on our side and let that feed into the lineup and. Uh, I think once we started, once Zach Taylor got that walk, we were feeling really, really good about our situation. That's kind of the underrated play. When I talked with him about it, it was fun to hear him share his memories of not just that walk, but playing defense the inning before when you were pitching and already thinking, okay, I got to be leading off. I got to be ready for that. A huge walk. And obviously he steps aside. So Zach Clayton comes in to pinch run for him. You've got Army's bunt. Nick moves him over to third base with the ground ball. And we all, we all know what happens afterwards. Where were you watching in the top of the ninth in the dugout? I know normally you like to kind of sit in a bubble. You're not talking to anybody. You're in the back of the dugout. Were you kind of doing the same thing, or were you kind of closer to guys and watching a little closer and, and talking with guys? Uh, no, I was just sitting on the dugout. And I'm, I, I'm like not, not one of those guys that, like, don't talk to me. I'm going to yell at you or whatever. I just, I just sit there to relax and get my heart rate down and, kind of gather myself but uh yeah I was sitting just up on top of the bench when Caden hit that fly ball which I thought was out of play from my from my point of view I was like oh he just hit a foul ball into the stands I didn't know that they actually had a play on it until after I heard the whole stadium erupt everyone I was like what what happened like they dropped they dropped balls what that wasn't out of play uh so yeah I didn't I had no idea and then I, I I did see trap swing. I knew off the bat that was it was gone. It was how far is it going? Uh, so yeah, I was just watching watching from the dugout, getting to see everyone in front of me, kind of get all excited and jump around. So it was it was cool to kind of be a little further back from everyone else during that moment. It's one thing to talk about nervousness when your back's against the wall and things are going poorly or you've got you know like you said three to two deficit in the eighth inning it's oh my gosh I got to play well it's another thing to maintain your mental approach when things suddenly are really well and you come out in the ninth inning and it's like oh my gosh we're going to win this thing and force a game three those could potentially be 
equally difficult to maintain your mental process. So where were you at when now we're up five to three going into the bottom of the night? Uh, kind of same spot. Just, you know, we're going to make pitches and just go as far as I can, do whatever I need, get as many outs as I can and uh, have fun tomorrow. Uh, so I, I just kind of let a few get away from me and then uh, I got behind the count, put a good swing on the ball, got the single. So, uh, and then they made the move to Molly, which was fine with me. Uh, let him get the save until he does best. So, uh, yeah, it was no big deal. I've talked with multiple guys about what it felt like after game two. And now technically the series is tied. You theoretically have a 50% chance or each team's equal, but Caden Grenier said it, it wasn't equal. Kyle Novak's like, no. there wasn't really a question. T take me into why you felt differently about game three. Uh, just because they were, they were deflated. They were, they had their two good guys. They, they couldn't go to uh, Blake, right? That was his name. Blake. Blaine Knight, yeah. He, he was done. Their Saturday night guy was done. They had used Cronin both nights. That's their that's their guy. Uh, we actually knew when he came out in the second game, like he'd never gone back-to-back -back days because uh, he was sick earlier in the year and they didn't want to overstress his nervous system or whatever. So he never threw back-to-back -back days. So we knew that when he came in the second day. And then we knew, well, there's no way he's going three days in a row. He's not ready for that. So we we knew all we had to do is kind of show up and do do Beaver baseball, and it was going to be ours no matter what. We had that conversation when we got back onto the bus after game two. It was, it's 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 over. So yeah, what was the conversations like about starting game three? Because obviously you play some game two and the decision wasn't made right away. So when did you talk with Yeski and Case? Was it that night? Was it the morning of the next yep. day? And how did that decision come about to, okay, I'm going to start game three? Actually, it might have been the morning of. Um, yeah, I think it was. I think it was that morning. Uh, and it was just, hey, we know you're – I mean, we, obviously you can throw back bag days. I, have done, I had done that before. Uh, but the conversation was, you know, we know you're only going to go a few innings, so we'd rather have that be at the start and you set the tone. Um, and so my, my, my whole idea thought, our idea was I'm just going to go as long as I can uh, and then hand the ball off to whoever else comes in after me. But, yeah, I felt, I felt good going into that day. My body felt rested, felt recovered. Uh, was able to do some some muscle tissue work with Jeremy the night after game two and really helped speed up the recovery process for my body. It wasn't sore and just I knew I, I wasn't – I was just expected to go as, as far as I can and get as many outs as I could. And that's why you kind of saw I was – I think I sat like 88 to 90 the first four innings or four or five innings. Uh, came out after that inning and had that conversation with Yeski and he said, hey, you're – this is more than what we expected. So everything from here on out is just a bonus. And I said, all right, I'm going to give you everything I got. And that was when my, my Vila started to tick up to probably said 91, 93, probably the rest of the game. Because uh, I had felt good. I, I, would, I had saved it up and was able to finish it out. At what point did you realize, 
oh, I might actually finish this game and go go all the way. I mean, that's always kind of the goal whenever you start a game. So like, I want to I want to finish it. So uh, I guess that's what you're always working towards. But I mean, I knew at any moment I this I could get taken out because this is. But in my head, there's there's only one guy I was handing the ball off, and that was or the hand the ball off to, and that was Luke. But yeah, I guess it never really became anything. I'd say probably the last at bat was like shit, job's pretty much done now. Just gotta focus up for a few more pitches and this is over. But yeah, I'd say that was the only time it really came to, but never really was like, oh by the way, this is also for the national championship. Kind of forgot about that until after the last pitch was called that I realized we had just done something special. So when Alan was watching it, he said it looked like, or maybe it was him or Zach, a couple of guys have made comments about you in game three, like, oh, he looked like he was playing a video game or he just looked so calm, that sort of thing. Where were you at mentally in, in that game if there's anything different than even earlier College World Series games where you were already playing well? Like, what felt different about that game three? Uh, I think I just – I didn't make the moment too big because I knew – I wasn't expected to do really well. I was just kind of just give us all you guys. There wasn't a whole lot of pressure. I knew we were going to put up runs, and they did that early on. So that really took care of that pressure. It was just go out there and make pitches. And so that's really all I did for for nine innings is me and Rutch just playing catch. And it was fun. I got to watch half of a baseball game while I sat in the dugout and saw our guys hit, and I got to play in half of a baseball game, which is my favorite thing to do. So. Uh, just having a good time. When you when you said the only guy I'm going to hand the ball off to is Luke, because you were really thinking, I mean, there are a ton of other relievers that could have come in, Dylan Pierce, Grant Gambrell, Christian, whoever me, Brandon Iser, whoever, but you really felt like n- nobody's going to come in to replace me except Luke, or, or what made you kind of feel that way? Uh, it's just because of what it's, what's kind of gone on in, in his life and how he got snubbed out of a 2017 appearance. I don't think anyone on our team would have argued that it would have been right for him to do, especially with how Omaha kind of started for him. It wasn't great. His body was obviously fatigued, but if there's a guy that can get three, three or out, three outs or less, it's, it's Luke. He's, you ask the guys he's faced in the Pac-12 and they'll tell you they've never seen a better fastball slider combination out of any lefty ever. Uh, So I think it just, and he's also just the leader of our, our pitching staff and a leader on the team. And uh, it just it would have been right for him to finish it out, in my opinion. Well, did, did that affect – I mean, it almost seems like you – I mean, I'm sure you would have been fine either way. Yes, he makes the decision, him and Case. But it ended up being you and Luke didn't come in in game three. So – was that fine or were you almost like, hey, Yeski, you can, you can pull me out if you put Luke in. Did you ever consider that? <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't say that. But I knew, I knew he was down there warming up. So I, I, I knew I had that comfortable feeling of knowing I got the best pitcher in the country coming in after me if things don't go well. So don't make it too hard on yourself. Yeah. So you ended up staying in. And, and at that point, it's five to zero. It felt like you're cruising. You finish it out um, and you win. <laughs> the national championship as crazy as that is as a freshman and, and winning four games. Um, first off, what does an Adley Rutschman tackle feel like getting that right in the gut? It wasn't so much of a tackle. It was more of like a, a hug. And uh, me realizing like, oh, I need to get to the ground now. 
so he was he was kind of just like walking with me and then I let him kind of take me to the ground because I knew there was a lot of bodies coming my way uh and so I, he got on top he was able to kind of prop himself up to at least take some of the some of the weight which I greatly appreciate because I still could not breathe for about 30 or seconds at least it felt like a, a, a long time uh under that dog pile it was very dark couldn't breathe uh but best time of my life wouldn't trade it for anything in the world that's that's scary i mean i know it always feels longer than it really is but gosh yeah. that, that's dangerous yes very that's why you only dog pile once a year true and if there's any way to to as morbidly as it sounds to go out and to die maybe winning a national championship is the best way to do it I can think of worse ways to die. A uh, couple last things. Just in terms of not just that moment of you win a national championship and you dogpile and you've got the fun memories and everyone can see that on camera. But what about after that? And when you reflect on, oh my gosh, we won a national championship and you carry that with you for the rest of your life. And even to today, it's been two years. But the feeling and the realization of a national championship, how that affected you, how much that means to you. Um, take me into your mind a little bit of just beyond the cameras of the smile and the, the dog pile and all that. But really when you, when you sit back and think about it to yourself and talk with the guys, what does national championship mean? I, I take more <clears throat> pride and appreciation in hearing other people's stories and how it's affected them. Uh, obviously it changes all of our lives. We're, we're etched in history, especially in the state of Oregon. But hearing from the community and how it's how it helped them get through tough times, or I've had people come up to me and tell me like that, you know, us us winning the national championship really helped them get through a tough time because a family member had died, and you know they were going through a tough time, but it gave them something to, to look forward to and to cheer for and to be happy and, and proud of. And, uh, I think just having that community behind us is what makes it so special for us. So we, we see these people every weekend uh, and they're always there early saying hi and, and talking to us and things like that. And so I think just having, knowing that it affected more, more people than just us uh, is what makes the, it so special. Uh, that's really meaningful. That's one of the things I've asked pretty much all the guys of, reflections beyond that I've got some really good answers and I appreciate what you just said um one just funny question Adley Rutschman's a great framer of pitches he makes balls look like strikes pretty consistently when you were facing Luke Bonfield in the ninth inning was that last pitch at the bottom of the zone or was it low and he framed it back up into the zone uh I've seen worse pitches be called strikes, and it's, it had been a strike all day long. He was given the bottom of the zone both ways. If we had K-zone, I would say maybe maybe the top of the ball would have caught the bottom. Ad, Rutch made it look better than it was, I'll be honest. He made it look better than what it was, but can't take that with National Championship. You got to swing. got to swing. got to at least foul it off, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Either, either way you would have won even if they called that a ball I mean it's five to zero but but <laughs> yeah I yeah I think he made it look a lot better than, than what it was but it's close enough yeah. I guess got the job done <laughs>
Um, last thing, because I've taken up so much of your time. Thanks so much for, for talking and everything. So this will be the, the last question. It's been really fun to, to catch up about 2018 and some amazing memories. And gosh, what a, a stretch that was for the baseball program, for upperclassmen, underclassmen, the coaches and everybody. Um, what's, what's just, you know, the last story that you've told when you're reminiscing with guys, talking about teammates, or just a, an anecdote that comes up often from Omaha of, hey, you remember that time that we did this, something off the field, um, some funny thing that happened? What was just a story that you've heard someone bring up or you tell and, and reminisce about with the guys? I feel like I was just talking to Nate about something the other day. A lot of, a lot of it's just like laughing about when we lost like four out of six games to Utah and it was Arizona, I think that's a pretty common one. Uh, just like, how the hell did we do that? Were you one of the guys that left your mitt outside? Moley, I think left his mitt outside in the rain delay. When his mitt got all wet. Were you one of the guys that left your mitt outside? Uh, no, I had my glove with me, but my bag was out there. My bag got soaked. That was tough. I had so I had like my bag was soaked. I had a baseball that I, I keep in there. Uh, that got soaked my my yeah, I got like a shirt or something that got absolutely drenched my shoes my turfs got drenched until we find someone finally thought of our stuff being out there we're like hey our yeah, our stuff's getting rained on so someone ran out there and grabbed everything luckily but yeah that was a sad realization when that happened did that affect I mean, none of that was like your game stuff, right? It was just kind of annoying, or was any of it no. actually equipment? No, 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 it was just annoying. I, I mean, I had my glove. I was wearing my cleats. Yeah. I had my uniform. I had my glove with me. Whereas in the dugout, one of the two. So, right. No, it didn't. It didn't affect me. But I was just like, "Hey, can someone go grab my stuff, please?" <laughs> and that was during the the Washington game, right? Is that when all that was? I think going so. On? Yeah, okay. pretty sure. A lot of fun memories. Well, thanks yeah. so much for reminiscing about that and, and so much fun stuff. We could, we could talk for hours more, but I'll, I'll let you go. And it's been really fun to, to catch up with you, Kevin. Best of luck for planning in for Oregon State and all that coming up. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. There are so many individual moments throughout the 2018 postseason that kind of get forgotten. The LSU rivalry or the Mississippi State games in Omaha or the Super Regionals, whatever it is. And it's going to be really fun to piece this whole project together using Kevin Abel's memories or Jack Anderson's or Zach Taylor's or Andy Armstrong, whoever it may be. All the interviews I've gotten, whether it's Oregon State players or other people related to the program, it's going to be a great project. If you're excited about that, there is an email list. Check out the website and leave your email there so you can get some updates. I won't spam you on that, but there's a link in this description for this episode. And look forward to checking out the Beaver Tales documentaries. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. Kevin Abel was really fun to talk to. Almost lost track of time. It was like 50 minutes that we talked with each other. But really good conversation. I appreciate him. And best of luck to him continuing with Oregon State. And hopefully he can uh, put some more big memories in a Beaver uniform before going on to what I expect to be a successful professional career down the road. Thanks again to Kevin. Until next time, everybody, good night and go Beavs. <laughs>